question I want to ask you this morning is, do you think it's possible to eat and still be hungry? Yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. This part is, oh, yes. Amen, somebody, right? Uh, I, I, I know I can, right? There are many, many nights where I eat a full supper uh, and yet still feel the need to have a big snack to go to bed on just a few hours later, right? So that, that happens to other people, right, besides just me? Come on now. Okay, all right, just, just me, all right. But, you know, we, we all get hungry, and food is a gift from God to be enjoyed, but life is filled with hungers that go beyond empty stomachs. Because, you know, I'm sure you guys have all heard the, the expression, right, you can give a man a fish or you, you can teach him how to fish. But I think our Lord Jesus would have added to that that even the most successful fishermen have hungers that can't be filled at the end of a hook. Because with all of our consuming, there comes a point when no food, uh, no pleasure uh, can fill or satisfy. That's yeah. Thanks, honey. Thanks, honey. <laughs> How does she really feel about me? Right. But but there comes a point where where no food or pleasure can satisfy the deepest needs and hungers that we experience. And the text that I want to share with you today expands on that as we continue uh, our look this morning in our study of the beatitudes of our Lord from His Sermon on the Mount. So looking again at Matthew chapter five. So remember again that's our our gospel focus for the year, and this time the first six verses until we get to the one that we're going to tackle today. So listen for the voice of the Spirit. I hope you have your Bibles in front of you, open in front of you. Even though it's on the screen, it's important to see it in the Word of God that you carry around with you and take home and you can review it again. Uh, but listen for the voice of the Spirit. Seeing the crowds, uh, he, meaning Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord to us today. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, our Father, your blessed Son told us that men don't live by uh, bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. And so, Lord, we ask that as the word has now been read and heard, that you would apply it to hearts, that you would apply it to minds, uh, that you would open us, Lord, to receive all that you have for us and feed us today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So in, in Matthew chapter 5, which we've been reviewing these last few weeks, we find, of course, eight statements of our Lord that we call the Beatitudes, eight statements that describe eight character qualities which define the character of our Lord Jesus uh, and which it is God's intention to build into each of us as we travel down the road toward sanctification. And today, we come to that fourth quality in that list, uh, which is blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Which I guess gives us a great place to start by asking, uh, are you satisfied? Are we satisfied? And I don't mean just with your income, uh, or with your spouse, or with the amount of cellular data you have left at the end of the month, or the the lasting effects of what little bit of breakfast that you hurried up and ate before you dashed into church this morning, if your stomach's growling. Uh, know what I mean by gauging our level of satisfaction is in those moments when you, know, you lie awake at night and you ponder the trajectory that your life has taken and the prospects of the, the days that remain ahead. And you ask yourself, are you satisfied with where you've gotten to? Are you satisfied with where you're going? 
on this pathway that we call life? Or do you get the nagging feeling that there is inside yourself something that is just not quite right? The 19th century uh, British philosopher Bertrand Russell, probably one of the most famous atheists of all time, uh, he, he had that feeling, and in one of his books he wrote this. He said, at the center of me is always an eternally terrible pain, a searching for something beyond what the world contains, something transfigured and infinite, the beatific vision, God. And he says, I do not find it, and I do not think it is to be found but the love of it is my life. It is the actual spring of life within me. So, so here's an unbeliever who, for all his atheistic assertions, confesses an inner hunger for something more, but that he just couldn't find it. Or more accurately, we would say he just wouldn't allow himself to find it because the Bible says very clearly that that's what happens with the wicked. They know about God, but the Bible says they suppress the truth by their wickedness. And yet for Hall, his intellectual prowess, he still had to admit that in the place where God should be, that he had a hunger that could not be satisfied in any other way. Two centuries earlier, the French mathematician and scientist Blaise Pascal uh, hit this idea perfectly when he said, what else does this craving and this helplessness proclaim but that there was once in man a true happiness of which all that now remains is an empty print and trace. This he tries in vain to fill with everything around him, seeking in things help he cannot find, since the infinite abyss can be filled only with the infinite and the immutable object, in other words, by God himself. So you see what we're getting at here. On the one hand, men like Bertrand Russell try to satisfy their appetites for whatever form of pleasure you want to name, and at the point where they begin to feel dissatisfied in some way, rather than turning to God, they turn to their own natural appetites and think, if I could just have more, if I could just have more of that, right? If I could just have more of this, more, more money, more power, more, more parties, uh, more playthings, more something. And on the other hand, you know, even though we Christians can get caught up in following our own appetites and the whims of consumerism at times, most of us come to realize sooner or later, like Pascal did, that the things of this world will not lead us to true satisfaction. And so we need to look for something more. And so we take what seems like the logical next step, which is to seek satisfaction in a relationship with God. But hear me out on this, and I want you to really think about this for a minute. Don't get too shocked when I, when I say this. What if that approach is destined to fail too? What if God doesn't want us to be satisfied with our Bible studies? What if God doesn't want us to be satisfied with our devotions and our times of prayer and our acts of service done in His name? What if the truth is He wants us to live unsatisfied and be, as I referenced in the title of the sermon, happily hungry? Right? What if the hunger is the blessing? Think about it like this. A Christian author wrote, when we come to Christ expecting satisfaction, we inadvertently approach God as if he were the answer to both our natural appetites and our consumeristic desires. And rather than ask him to transform our desires, we expect him to take them away or to morph himself into something we're wanting so that we approach him as either a product or a solution, and God is neither. 
Another, another Christian writer said here, Christ does far more than make our living completely fulfilling. Repentance and redemption are more than transactional requirements for a good life. God is far greater than a quick fix. And his ultimate plan for our recreation and redemption is not a mere afterthought to a happy life. In some ways, he says, a relationship with Christ intensifies our longings and God shapes them into visions of what he wants us to desire. So again, you see what I'm getting at here. Yes, it makes sense that we acknowledge that nothing in this world can fill or satisfy our souls and that we follow up that acknowledgement with an affirmation that God can and will. But the problem comes when we expect that God will fill us on our terms and that he'll do it right now and be done with it. Right? Mission accomplished. When the truth is, if we're to take Christ's word seriously when he says, blessed are or happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied, that there must be something inherently good in the hungering. Just like there was in the morning and in the meekness and in the poverty of spirit from the other beatitudes that we looked at because they give evidence to a life that has been redeemed and that is moving in the right direction. So that in the words of C.S. Lewis here, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desire not too strong but too weak. We are far too easily pleased. And so the hunger and thirst for righteousness is a good thing. right? It's a feature, not a bug in the program of the Christian life. And that's what Christ is telling us, and especially if you take the time to dig into the original Greek in this text, this beatitude could legitimately be read Happier are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall feed. They shall feed, feed on God's word continually and have a genuine desire to not just know more about him, but to know more of him. And so today's beatitude speaks not only of our initial hunger and thirst for God, but also about the continuing hunger and thirst that we have in our lives every day as his followers. And that if anything, that should only grow in intensity and not lessen. To see this kind of hunger uh, expressed, I think it may be best in Psalm 63. Uh, if you still have your Bibles open, turn to Psalm 63.1, where King David, who already knew God so intimately, was expressing his desire to know more. And he wrote, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. He said, My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As a dry and weary land where there is no water, so I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. And so I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich foods, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. So you see how he's expressing his longing for God here? He says, my soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you. Just like our Lord Jesus speaking in Matthew 5, 6, saying the hunger and thirst for righteousness uh, to where you long for God in such a way you can feel in your bones. You can feel it in your heart, in your spirit. Right? And David goes on to say, I've, I've seen you in the sanctuary, in power, in glory. And he's talking about worship here where his hunger and thirst for God was blessed because it drove him to meet God in worship drove him to where he met God and was satisfied in his presence. And this is the pattern for we Christians as we walk with the Lord. 
We have that initial hunger for God that brings us to him for salvation, but then we have the kind of ongoing hunger to worship him every day, every week, in all that we do. Just like with Jesus' encounter at the woman at the well, if you remember the story from John chapter 4, the Bible tells us a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. His disciples had gone away to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask me for a drink, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with. The well's deep. Uh, Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, and as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water, again, the, the well water, will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And if you're, if you're listening closely, if you notice, Jesus didn't say that she would never get thirsty. He said she would never be thirsty. He didn't give her a magic potion that would eliminate the desire to drink, but rather he promised her an inexhaustible supply from which to draw. And as Philippians 3 says, to find in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, a righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. See, this is the balance. This is the the challenge of the Christian life that we're saved by grace alone, by the unmerited sovereign mercy of a God with a salvation that there is nothing that we can do to earn and that we don't have to work to maintain. And yet we are called to grow in it and to mature in it and to live a more upright life, a more righteous life where the blessed hunger of our Lord where it's committed not just as the way to redemption, but as the evidence of it. It's not the way there, it's the evidence that you found it. Thomas Watson, the 17th century Puritan pastor and author who did a a really lengthy treatment of the Beatitudes that I recommend to you if you you have a chance to look at it, put it like this. He said, this hunger for righteousness evidences life. A dead man cannot hunger. Hunger proceeds from life. First thing a child does when it's born is to hunger after the breast, and spiritual hunger likewise follows upon the new birth. It's the evidence of our justification. And you got you guys remember the difference between sanctification and justification, right? Where's all my Bible study people? You guys, you guys know this. Justification is the common ground on which all of we Christians stand. It's where we're all level at the foot of the cross. We're all equal there. Because justification happens as a one-time act when God declares a guilty sinner to be righteous, and then with zero cooperation on our part, delivers us from the penalty of sin. And that's where the hunger and thirst should begin. That's the point when even though we are fully saved and completely forgiven, that we want to be more Christ-like. And it's the impulse that impels us to travel further and further down the road to sanctification, because that part is not an automatic action done by God. Our sanctification is cooperative. It's conditional on our desire and on our participation. 
That's why the Bible tells us to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Not as in work it up or work for it, but to work it out. Like we remember we used to have to do math problems in school. The teacher would say, don't just mark down the answer, show your work, right? You got to show your work. As we diligently seek to live a holy life because of God's grace towards us. Not just rest satisfied in our present spiritual progress because it's the realization that God has turned away his wrath that should motivate us to live a life pleasing to him in thought and in word and in deed. So as Second Peter tells us, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so it's the continual process by which believers are coming and becoming progressively more and more Christ-like, which in turn just wants us to be more Christ-like, right? You become more and more, and then you want more. This is also where today's beatitude provides an insight into the character of our Lord. Because, you know, Jesus always had a deep spiritual hunger to be with his Father. He showed us that in Mark chapter 1, right in the beginning, which tells us, that he rose up very early in the morning while it was still dark. He departed and went out to a desolate place where he prayed. And if you remember this story, this is right after Jesus had healed Peter's mother-in-law, and he ended up uh, with a whole lineup of patients outside of his door all night long to be next, to be healed. And with all of that busyness and being up all of that night after healing and comforting all of those people all night long, Jesus was up before sunrise because he just had to have time with God. See, that's real hunger and thirst for righteousness. And he was already perfect. One commentator put it like this. He said, his humanity made prayer a necessity and a privilege. He found comfort and joy in communion with his Father. And if the Savior of men, the Son of God, felt the need of prayer, how much more should feeble, sinful mortals feel the necessity of fervent, constant prayer? Right? Y'all, if Jesus needed to pray, what makes us think we don't? And the fact that Jesus set himself apart for God's purpose is both the basis and the condition of our being set apart since we are sanctified and sent into the world because Jesus was. Which is exactly why he tells us in John 17 in his high priestly prayer, he says, I have given them your word and the world has hated them. For they are not of this world any more than I am of this world. And my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. And then he said, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. And our Lord's sanctification is the pattern of and the power for our own. Because as Jesus continually hungered to do the will of the Father, he set himself apart in order to carry out the redemptive plan and purpose that God had prepared for him to do as our Messiah. And to be the Christ that he was sent into the world of men as a man to be, 
to be the perfect sinless son and to live a perfect sinless human life so that the character and the attributes of the one eternal omnipotent holy God might be revealed to a fallen human race. And not only to fill that empty God-shaped hole within us, but to make us hungry and thirsty for all that God has for us. Have you ever felt that hunger? Have you, have you ever experienced that kind of spiritual thirst? You know, for being completely honest, maybe you'll admit that you've been looking for something, longing for something, maybe in all the wrong places. But perhaps God has shown you today that what you're really looking for is Him. And brothers and sisters, if that's so, if you hear the Spirit speaking to you today, answer Him. Right, right where you are, you don't have to walk down the aisle. You don't have to repeat a prayer. You don't have to sign a commitment card. Just in your very own words and in the silence of your heart, cry out, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner, save me. And if you do that today, see me after or call me this week so we can talk about next steps. If you've already done that, if you're already a believer today, but you've not been seeking the Lord every day, if you've not been hungry for his word, if you haven't felt thirsty for his presence for a while, today's the day to come back to him. But either way, whichever side of that fence that you're on, God is calling you today to begin satisfying your soul with him and with only him, because brothers and sisters, he will not tolerate rivals. Amen.